The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Talo for lover. I'm Madeline Chapman, editor at The Spin-Off. If you have the means, consider supporting our high-quality journalism by becoming a Spin-Off member. Sign up now at thespinoff.co.nz/donate. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by Spark Lab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about Spark Lab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. Kia ora katoa and welcome to Business is Boring. Although everyone's been talking about it for a long time, New Zealand hasn't done a lot to reduce its reliance on dairy. The vast bulk of our industry is milk solids sent overseas as a commodity powder. The environmental impact of dairy is well known, but until now there hasn't really been another way to create cheese milk and other products with the same mouthfeel, taste and protein structure without involving a cow. Enter Daisy Lab, a new startup that's just successfully raised a seed round with some great investors like the founder of Raglan Foods, Outset and Icehouse Ventures. They are using precision fermentation, which is similar to traditional fermentation where microbes alter food taste or functionality in things like bread, cheese or wine. Precision fermentation, which is currently used to produce things like vegetarian rennet and some flavours and vitamins, allows them to make dairy without a cow in sight and the environmental impact is wildly lower with a tank at Daisy Lab displacing around 80 cows. The potential is enormous, and to talk the journey, the industry, and how this could disrupt everything, CEO and co-founder Irina Miller joins us now. Tanakwe, thank you for being here. Kia Hey, so tell me about your path into business. How did your one-year study break in New Zealand turn out? <laughs> well, I'm still here, and it's been 15 years. Um, yeah, I I um, worked for a consulting company for seven years um, across kind of different geographies, and I, I've never really um, imagined myself in business, um, never thought I'd found a startup. I uh, In my 20s, I guess I was very risk-averse, and I always – I just didn't think I had enough to um, – offer to the world as a, as a founder. I um, felt I had a lot to learn, so I thought my, my path would be a corporate path, um, something, you know, stable, large, big, international, so I can learn a lot and then I can contribute. Um, and then um, I guess I just couldn't um, believe how this particular idea hasn't been developed in New Zealand. I saw the opportunity, I saw it quite early, because I'm not a scientist, I was convinced that somebody will do it. Um, in fact, I thought somebody was already doing it. It just wasn't um, kind of promoted. And then when a few years have passed and I realized nobody still was doing it in New Zealand, I just thought that that's, that, that shouldn't, be, shouldn't be the case. Um, we didn't set out to start the business as a business. Initially, it was more of a... 
social enterprise. We thought we'll we'll kick off, we'll start the research, we'll um, sponsor a student. That was probably the easiest way for us to do it. And um, we thought that we will um, probably publish the research and then somebody else can take take over. And we realized there was actually a lot more interest in what we were doing than we originally anticipated. Um, going back to how I ended up in New Zealand, yes, it was meant to be a study break. I came here for a year. Um, just wanted a little bit. Probably if I hadn't had my daughter with me, I would have gone Southeast Asia traveling. Um, she was two and a half. I was a single mom. was not something I th- felt was a wise thing to do. So I wanted to go to a country with, you know, good health care that was safer to um, for us to be to be in. And New Zealand was it. So it was it was really lovely. And along the way in New Zealand, you worked in management consulting and a number of business roles, including in the dairy industry for a while. Hey. Yeah, absolutely. So I, as I, as I mentioned before, I worked in management consulting um, for several years, both in, in sort of in Europe and Russia, where I'm originally from, and in New Zealand. And um, then there was a time, and I thought, well, it's time to work in the industry. I looked around, and what's the biggest company? What's the biggest industry in New Zealand? And that was, um, yeah, that was dairy. Um, going into it, I felt really energetic and really excited because um, I was all about um, it was all about helping the company extract value. I was a vegetarian for many years, um, so I guess it all aligned with my values. Uh, working for the dairy industry, I guess the the realities and the, just the scale of it. Um, I'm a numbers person, so the scale of it started sinking in. And it just didn't quite sit well with me. I thought, no, that is way too much land, way too much, too many cows, way too much impact. And once you see the business model, still a large portion of it, larger portion of it is still a commodity product, just as you mentioned. And I just couldn't see, I just didn't think the sacrifice was worth it. So over there, people don't know where that powder comes from. Um, and we spend our natural resources. We, um, you know, it, it's a tough life for the animals who, who live in the industry. Um, it just didn't quite seem right. Yeah, I always find it amazing how few people in New Zealand, which is, you know, a dairy country, if you look at anything at a macro level, understand, unless they've grown up on a farm or close to farm life, how hard it is to be a dairy farmer and how hard it is on the animals, as you say, and how intensive the land use is. And and some of the kind of, you know, we've spoken to Glenn Herod from Happy Cow Milk on this podcast before about, you know, some of the central kind of um, issues with dairy farming, like um, inseminating the, the cows every year to keep them pregnant the whole time and removing them from the calves as soon as you can so that you don't lose production, which makes these kind of soulful animals very upset. Mm-hmm. And then the bobby calf question, where if they're not economic calves, they have, you know, sending them off well, to the works waste. after a couple of days yeah. after you've been hand-feeding them. Like, it's it's quite wild, isn't it? It's, it, it is, and it is hard for, for people to um, accept that, and that's why probably a lot of grown-ups don't even know. My husband, and he's a Kiwi and lived here his whole life, and it's probably only until I started working in the dairy industry and we started having those conversations at home did she, he actually think 
where milk comes from and what's the mechanism. We sort of grow up with the idea that cows just like to be milked and they just naturally, um, you know, lactate, which obviously isn't true. If you think about people, you you know, you, any mammal, you need to give birth to a baby yeah. to be able to lactate. And, and that mooing you hear before milking is pain and discomfort. Like it's pretty, <laughs> it's pretty wild. And yet people like... They just love the outputs so much. They're kind of willing to kind of bury these facts far down, much like no one likes to remember that alcohol's carcinogenic. Well, yeah. I mean, culturally and, and nutritionally, we've grown up with this product, particularly the, you know, the European kind of descendants. We've grown up with this product for thousands of years, and it was probably an evolutionary need for it because if you think about conditions in you know northern europe over winter if you don't have a cow in the shed you don't have any protein you might have some you know potatoes <laughs> stocked um over winter but you can't grow any other food or or keep any other food because of there's just you know no fridges no and it it was incredibly convenient to have those really big animals that produce so much um, proteinous liquid. But now, if you are redesigning the system, especially after the last few years where, you know, some um, high country farms, some sheep um, and uh, beef farmland was converted to dairy and maybe it wasn't the, the best in terms of environmental impacts, you know, we've really pushed it to the kind of edges, right? And so if you're designing a new a new system to get a proteinous um, liquid, <laughs> would it be this, or would it be where, where you come in? Exactly. I don't. I don't think it needs to be milk. I don't think we need any more milk on the planet, or any more cow's milk on the planet. Um, I think we need to think of different different ways. And kind of some of the things that we're really good at as a country uh, that can be replicated overseas, right? So it's not really necessarily protectable, our, our kind of current leadership position. No, it's not. But our knowledge is something that we have um, in, in our combined knowledge in dairy proteins, separating those proteins from the liquid they're in um, is, is, um, is amazing and is ahead of so many other countries. And that's really our competitive advantage. That's really what should we what we should be building on. Um, and Yes, it can be replicated, but the, the way we've designed our ecosystem or the way the ecosystem has grown around the dairy industry, that gets me really excited because I, th I think this is what we can tap into to um, bring out, out those new technologies and new ways of creating similar dairy proteins or identical dairy proteins. So, yeah, how did you come to be interested in precision fermentation to be able to be a different way of producing those proteins. And like, what's the big goal with it? Like, do you, are you able to make, because I guess the big problem with like non-dairy cheese is that it's terrible. <laughs> like, it's really disappointing. It's not as rewarding and flavorful and yum and exciting. No. And look, I, I do consume it because, um, because I made a choice not to consume any dairy cheese, but I agree with you. It definitely has... A lot of room for improvement. I think those companies that are um, cr creating those cheeses currently, um, good on them. Mm -hmm. um, keep on keep on developing. Um, and I and I'm 
um, a loyal consumer, but we could definitely do better. There's a very, um, very small, very cool little um, TikTok video, and I think it went on our Instagram account as well that we just um, made, and it talks about cheese and what you need to make cheese. And it's a very bite-sized, so you can um, go and, and have a look. And it talks about mycellular structure, and that mycellular structure is what allows the cheese to stretch. And that is um, currently only found um, in milk. And you need that, that particular milk protein called casein to be able to create that micelle and micellular structure and allow for that um, very specific mouthful stretch and melt that cow's cheese has. Um, and that's something, yes, we can create using precision fermentation. Yeah, wow. So... What what is precision fermentation? Um, you know, we, we said in the intro that it's used to make things like vitamins and uh, you know some vitamins and some flavors and stuff. Like, is it kind of like a you know in my head? I guess I go to a big stainless steel tank and then mystery, and then next thing you know, there's an output. Like, how does it all work? That's, that big stainless <laughs> big stainless steel tank is exactly how it would look. So if you've ever been to a craft brewery, that's kind of like what our production plant. Um, would look like. Um, so fundamentally, precision fermentation, very similar to traditional fermentation, just as you said, um, where people use microbes, they put microbes in sugary water, and then those microbes gobble up the sugars, multiply, go about their lives, and it is a byproduct of this of their life, produce a compound of interest. With bread, it's um, CO2, which makes the bubbles, which make the dough rise. With um, beer, it's alcohol. Uh, with precision fermentation, we give the microbes an extra set of instructions. So it is a genetically engineered microbes and we're quite transparent about it. The final product is non-GMO, however, because we remove all the all the microbes from the final product. So the final product is identical to the protein that would be um, produced by cow. So once we've um, given that microbe an extra set of instructions, which is literally a piece of instructional DNA that the cow would use to print and produce the exact same protein, this is where there is quite a bit of heavy science involved because most of the time the microbe would look at the extra set of instructions and say, yeah, nah, <laughs> I'm not interested in printing that. I've got my own proteins and my own um, compounds to take care of. But then one day microbe says, yep, that's actually fine. I quite like this set of instructions. I'm going to use it in my daily life. And they go about their life and they produce it as part of their byproduct. That's kind of in a nutshell how it works. Yeah, wow. And how do you go about as a business, I guess, piloting that? And what kind of stuff's involved with, you know, as you mentioned, there's like a genetically engineered component. Like, is that difficult to work with? Um, has that led to difficulties in kind of getting it off the ground as well? Um, look, there's certain regulations around it, and I think that they're, they're there for a reason because you can, <laughs> people now can engineer a lot of different things, um, and, and you do want to keep an eye of what's happening in your labs that work with different microbes. So, yeah, absolutely, we had to get our approvals in place and we had to be com completely transparent around what, we, what we're doing. It's, it's certainly a scientific undertaking to make sure that it works. There's a lot of luck involved in that because nature, no matter how much science you apply to nature, it's often 
quite unpredictable. It it does its own thing. But if you persevere and, and, and you're lucky at the same time, you succeed. And we managed to succeed. Um, it Currently, we're producing like literally small amounts, grams maybe of protein. But we've proven that it is identical to what we have in nature. Uh, it's... Um, and it's it's able to be scaled. So that's exactly what we what we were going to do in the next sort of twelve to eighteen months. Is we want to take this um, what's currently in very small amounts um, fits fits in a small container. We want to take it in a larger fermenter so that we are able to actually get some product. So we can play with it. We can create some formulations with it. We can start using it as a food ingredient. Yeah. Wow. So you've you've created. So you've piloted it out and created grams of, is it the casein proteins that you've um, created through this process? So whey protein currently we found easier to create. We can produce more um, of whey protein. We can produce casein as well. Um, we don't think that it's ready for scale up just yet. We want to give it a bit more time. There's just certain things that we, uh, yeah, we think we can improve that, um, that secretion system before we can um, take it forward. Yeah, and we'll be back in a moment with Irina Miller to talk about how they built the business and what comes next. Spark is proud to partner with the Sustainable Business Network and the Climate Action Toolbox. The free Climate Action Toolbox can provide you with simple step-by-step guides to measure and reduce your emissions. Help lead the way to a low-carbon future for New Zealand. Visit sparklab.co.nz forward slash sustainability to find out more. Tired of diesel buses? Want more cycle lanes or bus lanes? Which projects do you want Auckland Transport to work on first? They need your opinion. So head to haveyoursay.at.govt.nz forward slash RLTP to do just that. Consultation closes on 17 June. Get in quick. We're back with Irina Miller, co-founder and CEO at Daisy Lab. Hey, so that idea of precision fermentation, which is like pretty amazing, and lots of people who you, you know know about brewing beer or making bread will have an idea of kind of you know the the basic idea. But the precision bit's kind of interesting, eh? And that that idea of um, vegetable rennet. That's probably the closest analogue to what we've got here, eh? And that you've got a microbial process that's kicked off by a bit of information that's come from somewhere else. So that's the genetically modified part. So the bit of information comes in, tells them to do their job. Then they output, which is that a polite word for kind of uh, excrete or... (laughs) Secrete, I (laughs) would say, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) They output the result. And if it's vegetable rennet... What's outputted isn't a GMO thing, and then that's what's involved in pretty much any cheese that doesn't have animal rennet today, right? Yeah, absolutely. And 90% of cheeses um, are produced with microbial rennet, which means that we have been consuming products like that for decades. So people who um, eat any cheese, they would be produ- they would be consuming um, a product made using exact same process. And in fact, that's probably how I got the idea. I, work- I worked in the dairy industry and I um, learned about how rennet is made. 
Um, and based on my sort of residual knowledge of high school biology, um, I, I, it made a lot of sense to me. So I, I understood how, um, how it, it worked. And I thought, well, as a country, we're in the process of making bulk proteins. We're not really selling wholesome milk as it comes out of the cow. We really simplify it down to a handful of um, ingredients that are just proteins, fats, um, and maybe sugars, lactose. Why don't we just skip all the drama and we just go straight to the final compounds that we're actually extracting from that milk? Why don't we just use exactly the same process to make um, the, the products we want? It just seems so, it, it seems so much of a common sense to me. That's why I I didn't think it was novel enough or, or bold enough. I thought, well, of course, that's exactly what we're going to be doing in a couple of years as a country. And yet... <laughs> we and yet weren't. we haven't. We weren't. So, I know. So how do you go about getting, yeah, getting that ball rolling, like getting um, proof of concept and getting first believers on board to do that? Um. Firstly, I I found my my co-founder, Dr. Nikki Freed, um, and we just had a chat. And obviously, as a scientist, she understood the science of it straight away, and that made that made total sense to her. Um, she uh, um, we kind of put put our heads together. What's the easiest way of getting it off the ground? Considering we didn't necessarily want to to make it into a business, and she said, "Well, why don't we just find a student? Uh, I advertise for a PhD or master student." Um, someone who is passionate about it, wants to do the, the work, and then we will just help them with reagents. We will help basically make it happen. We will pay for their masters. And that's really what we did. And that's how we found Emily, our third co-founder. And initially, the first probably eight, 12 months, it was just her doing one stream of research in the lab uh, alongside doing her, uh, with doing her papers while she was doing that, though, that's where we started having conversations with the wider ecosystem, with the regulators, with investors. We got some media coverage and we realized, well, actually, despite people saying that that can't be done, that can be done in New Zealand. And there's a lot more investor interest than we ever anticipated. So let's just let's just do it. Let's let's do more than just one stream of research because you kind of just you you. It, it, it's a game of numbers in biology and just doing one stream, one organism just wasn't cutting it. We needed some people full time in the lab um, doing doing more work, doing it um, faster. And so then going out and like getting that investor interest, because you've got a great group of people like Outset Ventures, which we've talked about a little bit on the podcast over time, but it's like a Willy Wonka factory for kind of, um, you know, science and deep tech <laughs> yeah. kind of commercialization, which is so cool. Yeah, t- tell us about, about that journey. Again, it was probably surprising to me because all my knowledge of venture um, funding was based on, I don't know, movies, TV shows, and it just seemed so cutthroat and uh, you had to be incredibly salesy and assertive. And um, yes, I can be because I believe in the idea, but fundamentally it's probably not my personality. Um, We had some investors reaching out to us. I can't really remember without said. I think it may have been we we were introduced by someone. Um, And then you just start the conversation. There are people out there genuinely wanting to make a difference. So this is where 
it was I was really pleasantly surprised that venture capital today, and maybe it's a bit of a selection bias, so we just mostly meet <laughs> that type of investors. But most investors we meet, they're not just out to make huge returns. They they're out to make a difference. And Outset is definitely one of those um, investors. And so is Ice House Ventures. And obviously, um, Letitia Randall, who's backed our um, most recent round. Yeah. And so she's the founder and leader at Raglan Foods, which is really cool that someone who's, um, you know, in the, you know, dairy and adjacent kind of industry can immediately see this and go, oh, yeah. Like, yeah, so that's a great vote of confidence, that right? Was, yeah, absolutely. And I think this is what we needed. Um, we, none of us um, or n- nobody in our team had that consumer um, product experience. And that's definitely something she brings to the table, which is incredibly valuable. So where do you see this going in the near term? So, you know, we're at the stage where you've, you've proved the proved the science, which was no easy thing, right? Like you'd think, like, is this a a world first, some of the things you're doing at the moment or New Zealand first, or what's the state of it around the world? So there's a good dozen of companies around the world that are doing similar things Um, because there's so many different ways of getting to the final outcome. There's no way, uh, unless you're directly copying um, their researches and like they've given you your their protocols. Um, there is no way for us to over overlap. So um, it is likely that we are exceeding in some parts of of what we are are getting. Like currently, the protein that we are getting is incredibly pure before we even started to purify it. So the system that we've created um, has very little residual other other proteins, which in our view is very important because it, it should make the downstream processing a lot um, easier. And downstream processing in this kind of process, probably 70% of the cost. Um, it's hard to know exactly um, what advantages um, our, so to say, competitor uh, systems would have. We probably don't see each other as competitors that much. There's such a huge market. Yeah, there's there's more than one dairy company, right? Exactly, (laughs) exactly. So in many ways, we're we're moving in the same direction and trying to, and moving towards a a common goal. I remember talking to a a lovely guy who'd worked at Nestle and he'd moved to New Zealand. And um, I said to him, oh, so cool. You know, you're working at Nestle using, you know, New Zealand um, products and you know, and he was like, well, we never thought about where they came from. <laughs> it's really interesting because when you're a bulk commodity, people don't think about where the milk milk solids come from. Um, so so that's so cool. Where, where do you see this going? Like, do you think that we're heading towards an industry where, you know, 90% of stuff one day will be made uh, in these ways and then there'll be a you know, 10, 10%, 10% of the kind of artisanal, traditionally kind of inefficient models or... What, what, where do you think we're going to land? This is my very personal opinion, and and it, it is very biased because of the choices that I made. And I do believe that this world will happen, uh, and that the dairy will be re- replaced. Because even though it, it was evolutionary important to be a big part of our life, it isn't anymore. Um, time will tell. Yeah, and. Like, none of it bears too much thinking about, like, making cheese and milk. <laughs> like a, a nice vat that just, um, you, you know, pops out the proteins is a lot cleaner to kind of get into your head. Um, 
And and so, like you said, New Zealand's always been an expert in, and, and is a really great expert. And, you know, farming, there's a lot of great farmers. And, you, you know, talking about the dairy industry can seem like you're, you're, you're damning a lot of good people who are doing a lot of good work, right? But this does feel like, you know, the, the, the world's heading this way. How can our industry help transition in these things in, in really positive ways? Well, it's it's really building on our knowledge of protein, building on our um, um, dairy experience, because we know more about dairy proteins than any, any other country in the world. And who knows, maybe one day some of our farmers can turn into dairy brewers um, because this technology, once it's developed, uh, there's really not, much more to it than brewing beer. So once 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 the process is there and the culture we're using is there, um, it it could be a craft dairy brewery. Yeah, you've already got your tanks and then, you know, plant out. And we have a lot of stainless steel in this country. Yeah. Well, that's another thing is that um, could, could some of this equip, equipment be retrofitted to the needs of precision fermentation in the future? Yeah, and so a wildly lower environmental impact. And so just as a last couple of thoughts, like, you, you know, um, reasonably early on the journey, right? But like really, really great progress um, so far and years of work, you know, to get to this point of uncertainty and, you know, having to believe, uh, you know, when people were saying the science isn't there and it's not going to be possible. What's your advice for someone who does have that little inkling like, this should be so obvious and it's not there. Um, you know, should you have jumped into it five years earlier? Would you tell people to jump harder, faster? That's that's one that's one regret I have is not jumping into it earlier. And saying that, I guess the risk profile was different. We still had a mortgage. Uh, not having a mortgage really helped um, making that, that step, um, having a very supportive partner. So, yeah, look, but if you do feel, if, if things have, line up for you if you feel like you can take that risk um, and you feel that burning desire and you feel that it needs to be done, do it. I'm not a scientist and I, I just found the right people and surrounded myself with the right people. And now Nikki keeps telling me, stop telling people you're not a scientist because you've got enough <laughs> knowledge to talk about the science. And I probably do because of just because of this work. You just you, you'll pick up all the knowledge you need as long as you're prepared to Move forward, um, push forward, and you know uh, in in your heart you're doing the right thing. And as a final thought, what will success be for you personally and for Daisy Lab as a as an idea? I think if we can help bring this technology to a consumer product, um, that would be a, a huge success. And if we can make this, con if in my um, professional lifetime, we can make this technology successful and profitable. Um, that's definitely success. Um, I don't think in my lifetime it will displace a huge portion of our dairy, but it's a good it's a good start to just put it on the map. Yeah, well, I can't wait to see mm. where you take it next. It's so cool to think about these different futures. Uh, and yeah, we'll be following your journey closely. Thank you for being with us. And Lena Miller, CEO and co-founder at Daisy Lab. Thank you for having me. 
So thank you to Irina Miller, to you for listening, and for everyone who helps make this happen, like our producer, Samuel Robinson. Do follow Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts, and be sure to rate and leave a review if you like what we do. In Nohora. From the Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring. Brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Kia ora e te iwi, te Butler here, Podcast Manager at The Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spin-Off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.